Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to this Thursday edition of the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and I thank you for joining us. You may notice that Natalie Sawyer isn't here. She's entitled to go on holiday. I mean, although I don't know what kind of business sends you uh, on holiday, what, like a week after you start? But hey. Whose decision was that? Uh, I mean, seriously. I, clearly, our bosses, who are wise and all-knowing, of course. As you heard from that wise voice in the studio with me today, I'm delighted to be joined by Matthew Syed. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. How's it going with, with Natalie? I think the double act works well, the, the first couple of podcasts I've listened to. She doesn't know this yet, and it's going to be a surprise to her, but I'm going to introduce her as uh, uh, Susanna Reed, and uh, I will introduce myself as Piers Morgan. We'll try to get that vibe yeah, going. Yeah, yeah, like Given it. how wildly popular Piers Morgan is, um, I, I think it... But you're about as controversial as Piers Morgan. I, I, I like to think so. divisive. You have your fans, you have people who love you. Not just that. And, and, and then he, every now and again, there's one or two. There's a small, small ecosystem that are less keen. Not just that, but we both have links to the President of the United States in the sense that... Um, of course, Piers is a close personal friend of his, and <laughs> in my case, he simply went to the same university I did. But still, you know, yeah, close enough. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, in the studio, also we have a voice that you might have heard once or twice uh, during our World Cup podcast. I'm not going to make a joke. The fact that he happens to share his name with all sorts of football celebrities, because you can figure <laughs> it out for yourself. It's Alan Smith. Hi, Gav. How are you? Uh, very well. Who? You're, you're Irish, but you're very, you have a very soft Irish accent, unless you talk about. A certain, unless you say a certain word. Yeah, right? well, there, there are quite a few words. Lottery is the word. There you go. There you go. Um, that's the one that gives it away. Later on, we're going to be discussing uh, Unai Emery and uh, England's World Cup stars left out in the cold. And Natalie and I will be going head-to-head in our predictions league because, of course, even though she's on holiday, she still finds time because she wants to beat me given that I am winning 1-0 in the predictions league. But first, because we have the privilege of... George Culkin joining us, patron of the Sir Bobby Robson uh, Foundation, among other things. And uh, please do check out uh, their work because I think they really do have an impact and uh, and a lot of these guys work very hard. But because we have George, we're going to go to the great Northeast and talk some Mike Ashley, some Rafa Benitez, and maybe a little bit of Dennis Wise too, George. I am curious about this. I don't want to the whole conversation about Dennis Wise, but he was previously employed by the club, but it's been, what, like six, seven years now, right? If you're going to get somebody to be pro-Ashley, Ashley's not going to talk. Who are you going to get? Dennis Wise? Joe Kinnear? Your, your, your old buddy? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't, I mean, these are the figures who presumably will come out and say, "Oh, Ashley's a lovely guy, and he's doing." I mean, well, and 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 so Shola Amiobi, a player you know who had a long association with the club, also kind of spoke in Ashley's defence recently. I think that was probably a little bit more sort of disappointing, but he he. He he kind of came out and sort of said, "Oh well, to, to Ashley's credit, he's got the club in a p- position of financial security, and he's wiped out the debt and all that kind of stuff." And it's kind of it's sort of lazy things like that which rile Newcastle fans. The okay, debt is sorry. actually why is that lazy? Okay, so all right, all right. I mean, well, I, I, so, I'll, I'll play the devil's advocate here yeah, for a change. No, no, okay, no, I'm, so I'm, and Sai's giving I'm, me the thumbs up, so I'm going to keep going on this, and I'll, yeah, I'll so, shout over you the way people expect me to do because Natalie's not here. So you've had all these bad owners before, Freddie Shepherd and stuff like that, and the dogs, and Alan Shearer, Mary Poppins. Yeah. Now you have a guy who has you in the Premier League, has wiped out the club's debt, and you're not going bankrupt. Shouldn't you be grateful and say, thank you, Mr. Ashley. Thank you also for not selling to that evil Amanda Staveley. Uh, We should be grateful to you. Thank you, sir. May we have another? I don't know where to start. Really, with that, um, <laughs> I am so, being contrarian. So, Listen, the Dennis Wise isn't here. Somebody's got to play the the Dennis yeah, Wise no, part, minus well, the toupee. So, 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 so the problem is, is that the debt has actually doubled under Ashley's tenure. He's not charging interest on it, so that saves Newcastle money. But at the same time, he also doesn't pay for the Sports Direct advertising that's plastered all over the stadium and the close association with Sports Direct and the club merchandising and stuff like that. The club earns less commercially consistently now than it did when Mike Ashley took over the club. So Dennis Wise has kind of said that what's wrong with a football club trading players, buying and selling players and making a profit? And the answer to that, of course, is nothing. And if that's what you set out your business model to be, fair enough. However, at the end of last season, when Newcastle had finished 10th, Ashley went on the record and said that every penny the club generates will be made available to Rafa Benitez. Now, this summer, every penny has been minus £18 million at a conservative estimate. So it's things like that that rile up Newcastle fans. But it's also... What we just said, that means that Mm -hmm. they've made an £18 million profit in the transfer market? Yeah. So that eighteen million pound surplus that he said he would would be spending on new players and whatever, um, that hasn't actually been spent. Has it been spent to extend contracts or any other expenses they would have had? No, there was a sea change in the way that Newcastle fans thought about their own club during the Ashley tenure when Benitez arrived because he came in and talked about Newcastle in terms of its stature, talked about potential and history and all those things which had sort of been forgotten about because the club had made a virtue of not being able to kind of compete and you know being the best club they could be pound for pound and not you know not not treating the kind of cup seriously all that kind of stuff and his appointment theoretically changed that and the disappointing thing i think from the point of view of fans is that what felt like a huge opportunity is in danger of being let go is in danger of being wasted and the thought of you know, the thought of Benitez leaving at the end of this season is a very painful one because for a little while he has he has kind of represented hope and optimism and and excellence. George, do you think without Benitez, this is a Newcastle squad that could likely go down and should be considered among the relegation favourites? I thought that last season. You know, we look at the league table and see where they finished and it was, oh, well, that was, you know, that was a great season. But it was a struggle. You know, the last third of last season was really good, but it was a struggle. It was 10th and a struggle. They could easily have finished 15th or 16th. 
And Benitez had said that himself. And he said himself back in March, I think it was, on their sort of little mid-season training camp in Spain that he kind of wasn't enjoying it and that it was affecting him. I mean, I think they've, I think their squad is is sort of better now, and I do think they'll be okay. But I mean, a large part of that is to do with is to do with Rafa and to do with the fact that you know he will improve players for as long as he's for as long as he's there. I think the one concern I would have about them now is that they are very very vulnerable to injury two or three serious injuries and and they could well be in trouble. This issue of what a reasonable expectation is is from an owner is is obviously a broader one. Uh, Newcastle yeah. uh play play Chelsea on on Sunday and, and it's not the only place that this is going on. There's reports that United fans are going to fly an anti-Woodward uh banner over uh over Turf Moor when they play Burnley a week from Sunday. Just kind of weird to me at first i thought like why why don't they do it this weekend when they play spurs but then they play spurs on mondays so i guess it's dark maybe nobody can read the banner in the dark i don't know i also wonder if Mourinho is paying for the anti-woodward uh, banner i'm assuming <laughs> assuming no but what can the newcastle fans realistically do because obviously there was an offer to to buy the club last year there was a negotiation with with amanda staveley's group I, you can also tell us george if this is completely dead or or if it could come back or if it was just about money Ultimately, he bought the club with good money. It's his club. What can the fans do? What should the fans do? Yeah, and that's a great question, and it's a great question. I mean, I certainly think, you know, each club has its own context, doesn't it? And so I think the problem that the Northeast clubs have, and certainly includes Sunderland in this as well, is there is this there is this kind of feeling of, of kind of loyalty and how you express loyalty and people, you know, this virtue of turning up and being there and... You know, almost not wanting to protest because it's a sign of of not being supportive. I mean, by its kind of very nature. And I think they've, in spite of the perception, I think of Newcastle fans, there has been nothing to kind of compare to the sort of quite militant tactics of of Liverpool fans and Man United fans in the past and things like that. There is something a bit more. I think there's something a bit more organised happening now. There's this new Magpie Group, which has been established by various various groups and that has some traction and the feeling i think is that one thing they can try and do is actually try and take protest outside of the stadium where it does leave people sort of conflicted and uh you know kind of use sports direct as the battleground almost and you know there is a feeling that if mike actually doesn't care very much about newcastle he does care about sports direct and anything that might sort of bring negative publicity to that kind of brand would be something that might rouse his attention now in the long run is that going to make him leave newcastle well probably not you know per se I mean, he's he's tried to sell the club three times, or this is the third time that he's tried to sell the club and he hasn't succeeded. His life was made quite difficult up in Glasgow when he, you know, and I think there's that feeling that that by trying to do something a bit different, they can they can draw attention to what's going on and possibly, you know, possibly gain his interest. Fans, on average, are profoundly irrational, almost unbelievably so. So to take take United. Woodward's come in, and he has completely revolutionised the commercial side of Manchester United. They have, you know, a noodle sponsor. They have a tyre sponsor in India. They've segmented the global... I met somebody at a party who I think was the official Indian tyre distributor for Manchester United and paid a few million for it. They have massively boosted the revenues of the club. Now, 
they're not criticizing Woodward for that. No, they're no, criticizing no, Woodward for the fact you. that he handles the recruitment. I've, I've bumped into Manchester United fans who say it's an absolute disgrace that this wonderful historic brand is being sweated like this for commercial reasons. Then, you know, George rightly points out that the commercial revenues at Newcastle have gone down. But of course, the way to improve that would be to follow the Woodward model. Another way to do it, of course, would be merchandising. Put up the prices of the shirts that they sell in the stores. But of course, fans would go berserk about that if they put the prices up. Obviously, that's true to an extent, but you need to factor in that these clubs, especially for match-going fans, are considered sort of institutions in the community. Um, and that's why, again, Manchester United are different because it's a global brand. And like Gab said, the fans who are actually going to Old Trafford who own season tickets don't care how many bottles of wine they're selling in Australia. Your point about raising ticket prices, there is a fear among some people behind the scenes in football that by raising ticket prices, fans will stop going. That means empty seats. And because so much of this is built upon TV money, it's going to look terrible on TV coverage if you've got an empty stand. I mean, I, I was sort of no fan of the people who came before, actually, but that debt that they incurred was in transforming St. James's Park into a kind of world-class football stadium, mm. breaking world records on transfers, finishing second, third, fourth, fifth in the Premier League. They got a lot of things wrong, but they tried. And, you know, that's an emotive thing to say. It's not a bottom line comment, but under Ashley, Newcastle have stopped trying. They have a manager now who wants to try and who believes in trying and is being frustrated. That is the kind of battleground of what's happening at Newcastle. It's not about give Rafa 100 million quid to spend because we want to finish top. It's about give us a chance and let this be a club that is at least sort of ambitious, that at least tries. Now this season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every single goal from every single game in the Premier League. And guess what? It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Now, every Thursday at thetimes.co.uk, our stats man, Bill Edgar, provides 11 trivia teasers for you. They're not easy. Uh, at least, I don't think they are. And uh, we've picked out our favorite for you on this podcast. Now, today's teaser is, which Manchester City defender and Manchester United defender, with both started their team's two Premier League games this season, were born on exactly the same day? Clue. They were born on the day of the 1994 World Cup final. Stick around to the end of the podcast to find out the answer. Now, Alan, we have quite a big spread in uh, uh, the Times today by uh, um, with a piece by, by Henry Winter, looking at the summer where you all got so excited about England reaching the World Cup final. Well, probably not you so much, but but Syed, no doubt, and most yeah. of the Anglo's around here. Yeah. Um, and how weirdly, a lot of these guys who were part of of Southgate's team now kind of like reality hits, Premier League hits, and they're struggling for game time. Uh, you know, we haven't seen. Danny Rose, he's still linked with moves. It says here PSG and Schalke. PSG would seem rather extraordinary to me. Um, but Loftus-Cheek, of course, you know, comes back late and whatever. Uh, there, there's really a whole bunch of them. Um, but it's kind of weird, right? Is, is there a broader message that Henry makes? Um, I think if you're a big England fan, obviously it's quite deflating. But should anybody be surprised? 
I mean, when you consider that the club managers are under such pressure immediately from the opening games, they're going to pick their strongest team. They're not going to pick, say, Chelsea, uh, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who came off the bench in the opening game against Huddersfield, but Sarri had preferred Ross Barkley, which presents a caveat in itself, where if Ross Barkley had been fully fit and played quite a bit last season, he probably would have been in the World Cup squad. Nor can you people go and blame about foreigners taking your job when it's Ross Barkley keeping out Ruben Loftus-Cheek. Although Ross Barkley, as the story goes, is eligible to play for Nigeria, apparently. Yeah, but not anymore. Um, anymore, no. um, So that's one sort of caveat. Um, there's a nice sort of panel breaking down the minutes played by members of the England squad uh, within Henry's piece and Jordan Henderson you'd imagine he'll come back in and it's probably just a case of giving him some additional rest uh, Sterling? Sterling's an interesting one because of the depth at City um, Jesse Lingard hasn't played as much as people would have imagined which I think is quite interesting because if you look at Mourinho's approach he's thrown Pogba straight in. Pogba obviously reached the World Cup final. Uh, Lukaku's been straight in as well. On the well. Pogba point, and you may not know this, he came back five days early, yeah. right? And he won the World Cup. Yeah, and I believe Lingard came back early as well. Lingard did yeah. too. I wanted to check on that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's slightly more interesting. But I think in the case of certain players, obviously this post-World Cup additional rest period, um, specifically Henderson, Loftus-Cheek, I don't think anybody really seriously expected him to come in and take a starting role in... Chelsea's midfield, especially when Jorginho came in and therefore Kante was given this more advanced role. I think it's a really good analysis that that you make. I feel very conflicted about this because, Mm. yes, Gab, I was thrilled that England did so well at the World Cup and it was a wonderfully unifying thing, I think, for the country. And I think that feel-good factor, which is in the opening paragraphs of Henry's very good piece, is still very much alive. However... The Premier League, its beauty and its great strength is its ruthlessness. There are no broad quotas for homegrown players. If you're not good enough to make the team, you don't make it. Now, some might say that's a shame because it doesn't give our young players an opportunity to play and to strive and to improve within the league. But if you flip it on to economics... In the old days, when they used to protect domestic industries from foreign competition, did it enable the domestic industries to do better? No, they became flabby, they became complacent, they became lazy. Competition is often the best spur to development. And there's a couple of good studies out there, one by Stefan Zymanski, I hope I've got the pronunciation it's right. Zymanski. Zymanski, who's a very... Um, data-driven economist and his statistical assumptions are normally very, very good, who argues that foreign competition actually improves domestic players. Now, that's obviously against the conventional narrative, which is that one of the problems for the England team is our young players don't get into the first teams in the Premier League. But it reflects what Alan was drawing upon there, which is that managers have to pick the teams that they think will win, and it gives the young players an incentive to up their game in order to catch the selector's eye. You you make a a good point there, Um, and it's interesting what we've seen as well. And it's funny how Brexit, I think, dominates everything. But one of the interesting things is right now, anyway, English players have the opportunity to go abroad within Europe if they so choose quite easily. They may be able to after Brexit, presumably, but um, you know, there might be some, some extra hurdles. We don't know that yet. And what we've seen is some players, Jaden Sancho being an obvious one, Adam Ola Luckman, you know, deciding, you know what, I look at this, I look at the playing time in the Premier League, maybe I'll go abroad. Now, different circumstances, some are loans, some are um, permanent transfers, but but they're making that opportunity. And, and that is part of sort of the, the ethos, right, of 
of having a free market zone is, is the portability of labor. You may not get an opportunity here. You may feel that that you might want to go somewhere else to go and um, to go and develop your skills. So, I think that's very much in keeping with 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 that idea. Yeah, um, it, is. it is, but it's quite, it's interesting, isn't it? When you look at the Premier League, it is a magnet for great talent around the world i think it's a real melting pot and for what it's worth you will have found this when you interview top footballers i had dinner last night with hector bellerin and they talk about how seeing other players from different countries different cultures different tactical assumptions it creates a dynamic of learning within the modern dressing room this cosmopolitanism i think is a great way to learn new things and to reach out across the world to see what different people are doing in different ways we don't see many i mean you mentioned a few there but we don't see many English young players playing abroad, do we? I mean, it's not as sign- it's not. I bet you it's a lower proportion of English players playing in foreign leagues, top leagues, than it is a given foreign country amongst oh, the top nations who are far, playing. It's far, far lower, and right. there's there's a number Why of reasons. There's maybe three major reasons. One is that until recently, and it has changed substantially in the past two or three years, um, English football development wasn't considered particularly good. Another factor is is wages. So when these players turn professionals, if you're a good English player, you will sign generally the kind of contract that becomes very difficult for a foreign club to take a gamble on a 17-year-old. I think Ruben Loftus-Cheek is a good example. I think he signed a contract at, at 16 or 17 where he was making in excess of 20 grand a week, which, you know, there's very few 16-year-olds who will make that kind of money. Um, that's that's part of the, 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 the dilemma that, uh, that certain clubs have. They want to lock them up because there's such a demand for young English talent. The second one sort of relates to the first one. What you're saying is that English clubs overvalue the English players or, alternatively, that foreign clubs are undervaluing them because they think that because they've been developed in the English system, they don't have the array of technical skills that would work in their leagues. The two go hand in hand, but right. the, the second other factor is that English yeah. clubs generally have, generally have a lot more money. Uh, I think the third... Uh, the third factor is that um, simply has to do with with language and openness and the way these players are formed. So we know that if you go to Portugal or Holland, people in those countries will tend to be able to speak English. And if you're Portuguese, then you can probably get by in Spanish as well. And if you're Dutch, you'll have a greater familiarity with German. There's just a much greater portability. Here in England, that just doesn't happen. So again, language and, and customs and habit is generally a bigger barrier, yeah. especially for, for players who, you know, at 16, you're not going to necessarily have the kind of education that somebody might have had who's gone to university or whatever. The communication between coach and players and between players and each other, both in the dressing room and on the pitch, to what extent that is a facilitator of a cohesive team? The point you make about foreign clubs not wanting to hire English players because they're less willing to learn the language, I think that's very interesting. I'd like to see a study on that. You may have seen the story earlier in the week about Marco Silva is demanding that Richarlison, uh, Yerry Mina, learn English as quick as possible because they can't currently... uh, Richarlison, despite being here more than 12 months is not fluent in English um, and as sort of Marco Silva's uh, part of the bargain is that he's now going for additional English lessons to improve his own command of the language It's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. We need to move on. Uh, we're going to move on from Henry Winter to, to Matthew Syed. Uh, how about that? Um, now, you wrote a column um, about Emery taking over at Arsenal. So you're talking about, and you make a broader point as well. You know, you're taking over from somebody who, you know, had sort of been an Old Testament god um, at his club. Um, there's an obvious parallel with David Moyes uh, taking over at Sir Alex and his successors as well. And sort of the dynamic and, and changing the, the, the embedded norms yeah. that somebody sets at the club, especially when they're such an overwhelming figure and, and, and such micromanagers. Um, you use the word dictatorship, which I'm sure will, will ruffle some feathers, although you explain, you know, you don't mean that he's, you know, an authoritarian bad guy. He's not Kim Jong-un or, or, or Pol Pot, one would hope. Uh, can you just talk a little bit? more about that yeah i I was very struck um going to arsenal a number of times the extent to which wenger was not just the manager but the dominant animating presence at the club so you know you go through the gate and it's oh the boss isn't here yet you go and start talking to the players in the games room and it's where's the gaffer where's the gaffer and when wenger walked into the room i was playing table tennis with theo walcott at the time um the atmosphere is very good Okay, but very well. Obviously, not, not quite in my class, but right. then you know. <laughs> um, anyway, Wenger walks in. Everyone stiffens up. You know, the, the the scientists, the support staff, the players. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But when you begin to feel that Wenger was, you put it absolutely correctly, a micromanager. He decided the menus, the configuration of the pitch. He had some hand in the design of the Emirates. You and can London, see that the London Colney. Training and ground most massively, of all. massively on Colner. Because obviously that, that's where footballers spend most of their correct. time, right? And, and that, that was huge. So you could get the sense that everything people thought was through the filter or prism of what would Wenger think, what would Wenger say. Um, and it seems to me that when you change the manager, the manager is not just inheriting an infrastructure and a group of players, but a whole range of unspoken norms, behavioural and otherwise social norms, heuristics and assumptions – and that if a new manager comes in and tries to change everything at once, it can disturb the ecosystem in quite unpredictable ways. And I think you see this in politics. You can see it in big corporations. And so I was just reflecting on the fact that Emre has a, in some ways, tougher job than somebody who replaced... I mean, it's an obvious point in some ways, but uh, than replacing somebody who had only been at a club for three or four years and that he ought to be well, aware of that. Here's a question, somewhere broadly, because we, it's not just, you know, Wenger's gone, 
and there's a whole raft of people come in, right? So there's a new guy responsible for, for recruitment and scouting, and sure. Sven Mislintat, Raul Sanye, he's come in. He comes, and I think this might be significant as well, you know, Mislintat coming from Germany, Sanye, he coming from, um, uh, coming from a Spanish background. Ivan Gazidis is still there for now. It's just an extraordinary story that he might leave in September and then leaving another giant hole, I guess, uh, uh, at the top and all vestiges of past Bengariana will be will be eliminated. I'm assuming that that presumably makes the transition easier, Alan, because you, you know, you, everything's fresh. There's, there's, there's nothing left of Wenger other than sort of the physical things he built and the culture that's there, which presumably will erode over time. Yeah. And I think that's also why I would be reluctant to make any Moyes comparisons um, because the structure of the club has changed so much. And also, Emery is an individual. He's come in and he's actually changed quite a bit of the training ground. He's installed an outdoor gym because he, he believed that yeah, the way the way it was set up, that the players were wasting too much time going into the gym and then coming back out onto the pitch. So he's created this outdoor gym where they can just walk across, begin their gym session immediately. Um, he's even shown, obviously, a very small sample size, but in the two games, he's shown he's happy to make his own big decisions, bringing Mesut Ozil off, um, brought Aaron Ramsey off early in, in the first game. Which is basically to say that uh, these comparisons to Moyes Wild it's tempting to make because Ferguson and Wenger were there for so long. I'm, it's very, very different. I'm, I'm curious, just to give you some... some uh, Matthew, you get your view on this because, as he rightly says, he's he's made some big decision, an even bigger one if he drops Ozil and if Ozil plays the way he played in, in that hour that he was on the pitch or whatever against Chelsea, then you should just not just take him off but slap him upside the head, in my opinion. But... Um, <laughs> Bash! How dare you play like that? It worked for Cluffy, right? <laughs> you know. Um, but I wonder if this also comes into it. Emery is a guy who, I don't know how much familiar you are with his background, especially pre-PSG, is a guy who's known as very smart tactically, sees things early, really good judge of, of individuals, yeah. but somebody who is easily led by the club, somebody who's not going to go and necessarily stand up for himself. That was a criticism in Spain. He published this book, The Emery Method of Winning, and he was kind of derided, which was kind of like, oh yeah, what is it? Like, basically, like, say, yes, thank you, sir, and suck up to your bosses. And then, unlucky for him, he moved, and I think, like, let me be very clear, I'm not criticizing him. This is maybe, you know, it's, it's a perception that was there about him. And I, and I think know, he's, he's written his, a book on how to win football matches. Yes, which was, for which he was derided. This was in, in, in Spain, it's maybe six yeah. or seven years yeah, ago. And, right. and then on top of that, of yeah. course, yeah. he goes to PSG, where, again, the perception is, you're not really the boss here. Neymar's the boss, the players are the boss, uh, Nasser is the boss, you know, you will conform Especially, you know, following on from from Carlo Ancelotti, who was another guy who's kind of like more of a um, of a club man, an institutional manager, a guy, a diplomat. I wonder if, to some degree, that plays into his mind too. He knows how people perceive him, and he says, "You know what? Let me lay a marker down and show that you know yeah. nobody's untouchable here." D- yeah. Does that? I mean, th- does yeah. that happen in the? Well, I, I think that's really, really interesting. But I think there's a, there's quite a deep tension here. I mean, if you think of Alan's answer there, which which was really, really interesting, there's two things happening at the same time. One, absolutely right. There's been a division of responsibilities within the hierarchy of the playing staff at the club that didn't exist under Wenger. So in that sense, his remit is slightly smaller than Wenger's was. 
However, he has come in and done a great deal already. Brought in a whole load of new staff. And Bellerin was saying, you know, it's like playing for a new club almost. Now, I think that there are potential upsides for him in terms of laying down a marker and showing that he's his own man if this was something that dogged him reputationally previously. But I think there are very big risks in that you change too much too soon and it can be deeply confusing for the remaining staff and all the other people who are there who have been part of a set of traditions and ideas and assumptions that have been there for a very, very long time. It's a difficult balance. And I think that one tends to underestimate... I mean, think about it. Think about how many what you might call autocratic leaders have been replaced by somebody who looks like a great replacement and things have gone catastrophically wrong. Much worse than people might have imagined. I think that is largely resulting from the from the sort of the implicit norms that are being disrupted. Now, Arsenal, of course, play West Ham this weekend, and both teams have lost their first two games thus far. There's this fascinating take. I want to get you guys on this. West Ham obviously moved into what is now called the imaginatively the London Stadium, which I still like to call the Olympic Stadium, just to annoy them. But they kind of have two twin disputes with the landlords there. One is uh, this business with the Honours Board. There's a story by um, by Martin Ziegler in the paper today. West Ham have some kind of, of they have some kind of Honours Board, I guess, recognizing uh, um, club achievement and, and whatnot. And it was taken down over the summer because there was an athletics event. And I'm assuming they must have had some sort of sponsor signage. And then this business with the track... Um, where uh, there's there's a tarp that goes around the the the, the edges. Are you, you're more familiar with this, Alan. You wanna you wanna yeah. fill us in on that? So uh, I think it was October last season. Slavin Bilic had made the point that because this material that's covering the track is green, his players were running less. Um, I'm not sure he had any actual uh, definitive proof of that that was the case. I'm sure Matthew can cite a study which shows that green <laughs> makes <laughs> them run was, less. What's but, his reasoning there? But, um, so the, the the grass on the pitch is green and the track was green. Yeah, they were running less because. Because they couldn't see, their perception was that the pitch was actually bigger than what it was. That was that was his argument. I thought the argument was complete nonsense, but that was his. That was that was what he believed. Um, but so Karen the, Brady took it seriously because what did she say? What did she want to do? Yeah, he wants to change the colour. So now the argument is that. Uh, and the own, and the landlords were willing to change the colour. Yeah, so the, it, the, the dispute now, I believe, is over the colour. West Ham naturally would like it to be claret. Uh, stadium. Um, owners would like it to be dark blue, a uh, similar shade to sort of Spurs blue. Not um, because it's a Spurs blue, but it's because in keeping the with, the, the, with the rest of the, of the stadium, branding of the yeah, stadium. Yeah. Um, and because of uh, West Ham then saying, no, Spurs colours, we cannot put this in the stadium. So, so Karen Brady, as we tape this, is, she's about to put out uh, a statement, but effectively she says they're being held to ransom. And like, I, I don't know, you guys, regular li- listeners know my feeling about the unholy satanic trinity that owns that football club and i'll just say this i know there was a lot of dispute when they moved there and stuff with the owners and they said you know what you let these people into your house now you got to go and deal with them hi there and welcome to the sweeper which is the times's fancy football tip service as ever i'm charlie scott joined by paddy von bear hello so last week, hopefully you didn't follow the advice of one of our rival national newspapers who said that Sergio Aguero was going to get dropped by Pep Guardiola because he didn't. 
scored a hat-trick, 20 points. He was a standout player last week, wasn't he, Paddy? Yeah, it was a game that really revolved around Aguero. If he was your captain, you were happy. If you had him but he wasn't your captain, you were probably so-so. And if you didn't have him, then you were really struggling. Um, again, City, you sort of lead the way and dictate things, don't they? If you've got the informed City player, you're doing well. Um, and they've got some pretty good fixtures coming up. Wolves, the early kickoff this weekend, then Newcastle, Fulham and Cardiff. Those four teams between them have only scored four goals so far this season. I think... Aguero is looking like a must-stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't see him getting dropped. Pep has been waxing lyrical about him as well. I think ditto Benjamin Mendy as well. He's already got yeah. four assists in yeah. two games. I mean, yeah, poor old Fabian Delph isn't going to get a look in at left-back. And the two Silvers are brilliant value. Bernardo Silva's 7.5 million. David Silva was fantastic on his return last week. He's 8.4. It's, it's not too much of a risk having one of those. No, exactly. Um, there's a few other teams with some quite nice fixtures. I know you've been writing about one of them this week, is that? Yeah, Arsenal. I mean, they've lost their first two games, but they were pretty unlucky against Chelsea. They had lots of chances, and if Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang had his shooting boots on, then it could have been a completely different story. Over the next couple of months, they've got West Ham, Cardiff, Newcastle, Everton, Watford and Fulham. That's six fixtures where they'll be looking to get a lot of points from. I think Aubameyang's a standout standout player in fancy terms you should be looking to have or Henrik Mkhitaryan who at 7.1 million that's another creative midfielder who's very reasonably priced he's far less of a risk someone like Ozil who's 8.4 million or looking further afar Alexis Sanchez who's 10.4 million and Mkhitaryan leads the league for chances created so definitely one to keep an eye on I quite like the look of Chelsea Um, they've got some decent games coming up it's not until they meet Liverpool in four or five weeks time that they face a difficult opposition Um, the attacking midfield scenario is a bit up in the air at the moment but I think um, if you're looking for a differential up front Morata could be quite useful finally got the monkey off his back and scored against Arsenal Um, and Golo Conte is playing in a more advanced role than last season only 5 million and uh, Marcus Alonso they're playing a flat back four now but it seems like he's just as attacking as ever I can't believe how much he and Azpilicueta are getting forward yeah, he's, he's a bit of a fantasy legend, so he looks like a good one. Um, and lastly, Palace, actually. I quite like Palace's run of fixtures. What about Andros Townsend? Andros Townsend. Hit the bar with an absolute peach against Liverpool. Loves a cut in and a shot. Yeah. Um, and he's pretty pretty sure to be starting in that team for the foreseeable future. So I quite like him. Nice. Okay. For more tips in that vein, sign up to The Sweeper at thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football. Or if that's too much typing for you, then simply click on the link in the description for this podcast. Uh, there'll be an email going out tomorrow morning with all of our tips for this weekend. Or you can go to our Facebook page by searching for The Sweeper and get any feedback from us on your teams on there. Best of luck. Time now for our predictions. You'll recall that Natalie and I are engaged in the season-long prediction struggle. Um, So last week, I was on holiday, and Natalie was in the studio. And, of course, I was victorious. Thank you, Kennedy, by the way, for missing uh, that penalty, because that's how wafer-thin my victory margin was. This week, the roles are reversed. Natalie is on holiday in lovely Bulgaria, as you do, but she's filed her predictions. Hello, Natalie. Hello, London. This is Sophia calling. That's right. I am in Bulgaria, where we do call it Sophia, not Sophia, like everybody does in England. And I love Eurovision, hence my hello, London. This is Sophia calling. Um, Gab, you did very, very well in the first round of our uh, fixtures. Uh, So 
I'm going to try and claw my way back. So let's start with the first one. I've gone for an Arsenal 2-0 win against West Ham. I really believe this is the game where Unai Emery is going to get his first points as the Arsenal manager. As for the game at Craven Cottage, well, I'm going to go for a draw between Fulham and Burnley. I think it's going to be a 1-1 result in the end. Uh, the big win of the fixtures that we've selected I think is going to happen at the game between Bournemouth and Everton. I'm actually going to go for a 3-1 win for Everton with Richarlison once again at least getting one of the goals in that one. I'm also going for an away win for Real Madrid. I think they're going to win their game 2-1. I think it's going to be tight, but 2-1 I'm going for. And in the Paul Tisdale derby, I think we can call it that, his new club MK Dons, of course, hosting his old club Exeter. Exeter going really well in League 2. And MK Dons not doing badly either. And I think Tisdale is going to come out on top with his new club. A 2-1 win for the Dons. There you go, Gab. Let's see what you can come up with. All right, here we go. My predictions. Arsenal and West Ham, two teams uh, uh, both lost their first year opening games. I've actually gone for the draw here. I don't think West Ham were quite as awful as uh, people think. And uh, I think it's going to take Arsenal a little time to figure things out. I have Fulham beating Burnley. I know Burnley great away from home, but by the same token... Fulham have a load of players. Their slow start is down to that, and I think they match up well with Burnley. Bournemouth and Everton. I've gone for the scoreless draw on the South Coast. Why? Maybe because few people expect that. I like what both managers are doing. Uh, but yes, I've gone for the nil-nil. Girona against Real Madrid, my wheelhouse. I have uh, Madrid winning. I have a 3-1 against the, the, the Catalans. I think it could have been very different if opening day had gone differently. But come on, there's more than enough there. And uh, and Girona's goal, why not? And finally, I have Exeter, top of the table in League 2, winning 2-0 against MK Dons and their former manager, Paul Tisdale. Now, we have just enough time left to give you the answer to Bill Edgar's teaser. Now, reminder, what it was is which Manchester City defender and Manchester United defender who have both started both of their team's two Premier League games this season were born on exactly the same day, uh, which also was the day of the 1994 World Cup final. A A sad day for me, of course, because Italy lost on penalties to Brazil. And those two players are, drumroll... Victor Lindelof and Benjamin Mundy. How about that? That's all we've got time for. As I mentioned, many, many thanks to my excellent guest today, Matthew Syed and Alan Smith in the studio and down the line, the wonderful George Culkin. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet for only £8, just £8 for eight weeks. Search The Times subscription for more information. I'll be back on Monday alongside Natalie Sawyer, and back in the studio, it's Alison Rudd. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, 
and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history.